The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. And I invite you to turn with me to Second uh, Samuel and to chapter 7, and we'll begin reading at the 18th verse. Uh, to Samuel 7, and reading from verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house— and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. And we ask God's help as we come to the Bible. Father, we come now saying, Speak, Lord, to us through your Word. We recognize that you speak to us uh, through what you have already spoken. And so we pray for help that we might both understand and believe and live in the light of the truth that is here in the Bible. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we resume our studies at the 18th verse. Some of you will remember how uh, we struggled all our way through the first 17 verses, but eventually got there. I think it's appropriate for us to be reminded of what we have said as a kind of gateway into our study of First and Second Samuel, indeed into a study of all of the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. And I'm referring to uh, Paul's statement in Romans 15, and in the fourth verse, where he says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance 
and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Everything. So, in other words, it is a comprehensive statement uh, to teach us. Uh, This is uh, Paul writing uh, in the first century about all of the material that has gone before. And he is saying to those who are the initial readers of his letter to Rome, all that material was written not only for its impact upon the moment and the day and the time, but in order that it might teach us and teach us uh, this morning. And that the, the material that has been granted to us is of an intensely practical uh, dimension insofar as it is to bring about endurance so that we can keep going and encouragement so that we might live hopeful lives. And our conviction as we study the Bible together, of course, is that God Himself encourages us, each of us. The encouragement comes from God through the living Word of Scripture as God continues to speak to us through what He has spoken to us, that what He has spoken to us we now have in our Bibles, and we turn to our Bibles, and we say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, that this is so uh, comes across quite forcibly in a phrase that you will notice at the end of verse 19, where uh, David says, This is instruction for mankind. This is instruction for mankind. Now, we won't delay on that now, but we will come to it as we work our way through these verses. The chapter, you will recall, began with the desire on the part of David to build a house for God. Uh, He was living in a nice spot, and uh, the ark was in a tent, and so he said, I think it would be good if we did something a little better. You will recall that that request was denied him, And yet, despite the fact that he is not going to do this, uh, the Word of God comes to him through the prophet, that is, through Nathan, that the Lord—and I'm referring to the 11th verse uh, now—that the Lord will build you a house, or the Lord will make you a house. So, David, you're not going to make a house for God, but the Lord is going to make you a house. And we've noted already how that word house comes again and again, how it refers not sometimes to the physicality of a dwelling, but to a dynasty, and so on. And then in the 16th verse, uh, that house, uh, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, we make reference to that because it is important to recognize that all that, is, all that now follows here in the prayer that David prays is triggered by all that has gone before in the word that has come to him through Nathan the prophet. And you'll see that in verse 17. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the words that were spoken by Nathan painted, if you like, or created a picture. And it was as he heard God's Word to him through the prophet that he was enabled then to see things which he would never have seen by any other means. Now, if you think about that—and again, we want to lay here the same is true for us—that it is as we hear the Word of God 
that we then see things in a way that we would not see things were it not for what it is we hear. Then we come to verse 18, which begins, interestingly, with then. Then, we're told, after all of this, David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, presumably, he went into the tent, the tent that has been mentioned back at the very beginning of the chapter. You remember that it says back there, if, you, if your Bible opens in that way, uh, he was, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. And now here he is sitting before the Lord. And maybe of passing interest to you that that is the same verb uh, that is used both of dwell and of sitting. So, having heard from God, he now speaks to God. First, he listens to God, and then he responds in prayer. This, of course, is the pattern of prayer throughout uh, the story of God's dealings with us. Uh, the hymn writer helps us by saying that prayer is the soul's sincere desire uttered or unexpressed. So that when we think in terms of our response to God, when we think of that in terms of prayer, we ought not to think of it in a, in a formulaic way or even in a way that demands that our uh, language and the process of our speech is ordered in just a perfect fashion, but in the same way that you're able to sit in the presence as a child, perhaps with, a, with your father or even with your mother, and you don't have to actually say very much, but you're able simply to engage with them. And so it is that David sits. He went in purposefully and sat before the Lord. One of the ways that we could summarize these uh, verses all the way to the end of the chapter is to view David, uh, first of all, as sitting in the Lord's presence, and then secondly, as standing on the Lord's promise. Sitting in God's presence, standing on God's promise. Uh, we're not going to approach it in that way, but uh, I, I think it is one way to summarize it. Instead, I want to apply four words to help us through at least the opening section of the prayer. We want today get through all of these verses to verse 29. And in order to help us remember the four words that we're going to use, I created an acrostic so that we can perhaps remember it because the words are very similar to each other. The acrostic is this, eat out every day. Eat out every day. All right? And uh, that gives us, with the first letter of each of those words, uh, the first letter of the four words that I'm going to give you, which actually sounds a lot more confusing, and I wish I hadn't mentioned it. But anyway, here is, the here is the first of the four words. The first word is exclamation, exclamation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now, you're looking at the text, and you're saying to yourself, well, uh, why do you say exclamation? Isn't it actually a question? Well, of course, it is a question, and you will notice that in our English text, there is a question mark at the end of verse 18. But I take it that it is rhetorical. In other words, that David is not actually asking for an answer to this question. 
that at least I think in the early part of this prayer, and it may not be true the whole way through, we're actually eavesdropping. We're eavesdropping on private prayer. We're given the privilege now of going into a place that few of us will ever get in the lives of each other. I don't know how you begin your day. I don't know whether you pray on your knees or standing up. I don't know. And you don't really know about me either. And so it's a very special thing when we're able to go behind the scenes and, and, and enter into the life of the servant of God as he turns to the living God. Uh, Murray McShane is the one who is reputedly um, given this quote, a man is what he is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing else. The same would be true of a woman. A woman is what she is on her knees before God. This is what she is, and nothing else. In other words, the reality of our lives exposed before the living and true God is nowhere made clearer than in that place where we engage with God, as we find David doing here. What is this man, then? If a man is what he is in this way, what about David the man? What do we know about him? Well, those of you who have a good memory will remember that we were introduced to him as being handsome and with beautiful eyes. We know that he was chosen by God. We know that he was anointed by Samuel. We know that he defeated Goliath. We know that he is the king in Jerusalem. In other words, we know all these things about him, and we know, too, that he had plenty of reasons for making the mistake of thinking of himself more highly than he ought. After all, his CV is pretty good. Not only handsome, not only chosen, not only anointed, not only victorious in battle, and so on. And as we sneak in, as it were, to this very secret moment, as we peek in on it, we listen to him as he makes this exclamation, Who am I, O Lord? O Lord God, who am I that you have brought me to this place? O Lord God, why have you showered your blessings on someone as insignificant as me? You see, he views himself, himself first of all, as undeserving, and he recognizes also that he comes from an undistinguished family, that his perspective on his own life before the greatness of God is such that he is humbled. He's not walking around cocksure of himself. He's not presenting himself as some peculiar individual. No, he recognizes that that is not the case. After all, in verse 8, he knows this. Nathan was given the charge to say to David in his disclosure, verse 8, "'This you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep.'" That's where he came from. And not only did God take him, but God kept him. Verse 9, "'And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you.'" 
The God who takes is the God who also keeps. David, in one of his Psalms, will write about how the Lord is the one who watches out over his going out and his coming in. From this time forth, says David, and even forevermore. I lift my eyes to the hills, he says. Where does my help come from? Well, you see, his, his prayers are true to his life. If you go back to the Goliath scene, you will remember the Goliath system, you coming out to me, do you think I'm a dog? You coming at me with stones and sticks and things? And remember what he says, I come to you in the name of the living God. That's where his confidence lies. And so we're told that David has become greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. In short order, he is where he is in this house of cedar by divine enabling and not on account of his own genius, or not on account, ultimately, of his own human endeavor. Now, let's just pause and acknowledge something. Every single one of us in Christ may say the same thing. We are where we are, not as a result of peculiar gifts and worthiness. That's why we sang the song. My, strength, my, my worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in who I am. My worth is not in me. This, you see, is what David is pointing out. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? I think he'd be perfectly happy to come and join in many of our songs. I imagine him singing with us, Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Of course it does. You find the very same thing when you run into the New Testament. And there you will remember how the priests and the Levites came to this strange character, John the Baptist, uh, he was preaching, and many, many people were coming out to him. He dressed strangely, and he had a rather bizarre diet, as we've noted on previous occasions. And they came to him, and they said, Who are you? And they said, And what do you have to say about yourself? And you remember what he said? Why, thank you for asking. Why don't you check it out on my Facebook page? No. Do you really think everybody is that interested in us? No, you see, what we do is we magnify ourselves, and we diminish God. And when God reveals Himself through His Word, He reverses that order. For this is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord God. He or she who is humble in spirit and who trembles at my word. That is why we see David right here, amazed at the privilege of being a servant. Who am I? Is always and ever the right response, as opposed to, let me tell you, who I am. That's the first word. E for eat, for exclamation. O for out, for observation. Because he goes on to say in verse 19, and yet, he says, and yet this is a small matter compared to what's coming. And, of course, what has happened is that this word that has come to him through Nathan 
is making it clear to him that God has even bigger plans for him, bigger plans for his house, for his house. We're thinking dynasty. Verse 16 again, and your throne, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever and ever. And you will notice what he says here. This, verse uh, 19, this was a small thing in your eyes, in your eyes. Now, of course, God doesn't have eyes. That's a metaphor, isn't it? From the perspective of God, from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of eternity— You think about all the things that preoccupy us and concern us in the moment, and they're realistic, and they're important. They're they're vital in the journey of our lives. But when you stand far enough back from it, if you put it in a long continuum in terms of time, it it pales. I had an illustration of this without looking for it this this weekend when a couple of my granddaughters were staying with us overnight. And in the morning, somebody wanted to know what age I was in 1968. Or 64 it was. And I said, oh, in 64, I was, I, was, I was 12 in 64. I said, isn't that very old? She says, no, well, not in relation to the uh, time of the Roman Empire, Papa. <laughs> I said, that's good. That's good. That's a different perspective on things. That's a vastly different way from viewing everything in such an atomized fashion that we're almost paralyzed by the now. And the Word of God that comes to David blows the categories wide open. And he says, and yet, as dramatic as everything has been to this day, this was a small thing in your eyes. You see, I think it would be perfectly understandable if David were to have viewed everything that had happened to him to this point as kind of the apex of things, that this was, this was, a, this was it. You know, after all, from shepherd boy to king of Jerusalem, to, to king of Israel. <laughs> it must be—there can't be anything more now, is there? Mm, yeah. This is just the beginning. You will notice again if you see verse 19 there. You have spoken also of your servant's house. Here we go. For a great while to come. For a great while to come. What is he referring to when he says, you've spoken of your servant's house? He's referring to verses 11 to 16. That's the context. Notice that it is your servant's house. When you have time later on in the day, you can count how many times he is referred to here as a servant, and how many times he says again and again, you are the God of heaven's armies, you are Adonai, you are God, you are Lord. In other words, he's got this very, very clear in his mind. You are great. Who am I that you would speak so clearly to me and that you would have these plans for me? Actually, the real wonder is not that David refers to himself as God's servant, but that God refers to David as his servant. If you look back up in your text, uh, you will see that in chapter—earlier up in 7—the word that is given to Nathan is to go and tell my servant David. Tell my servant David. 
Now, you won't know this unless you've researched it, but I can let you into a secret. For David to be referred to as my servant David takes him into rare company. For to this point, the only other people in Holy Scripture referred to in that way are Abraham, Moses, and Caleb. So, when God speaks to Nathan in this way, and he designates David in this way, it is quite dramatic. He is the servant of God. He is only the servant of God. (laughs) You see the tension again. What a wonder that we are made the servants of God. Let's not forget that we are only the servants of God. Remember when Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he says, you know, if, if, if you have a house, and you have a servant, and um, you come home, and you say to your servant, you know, could you please fix me a meal? Would you please dress properly? Would you serve me correctly? And so on. He says, you don't make a big fuss and bother about it. You're not giving out awards, because after all, he is simply a servant. And then he says to his followers, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you say, we're unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. It's quite wonderful, isn't it? It's the same thing when Paul writes, and the people in the context of, uh, of Corinth, understandably, they decide, you know, which, which preacher do you like the best? Do you like Apollos, or do you like Paul, or whatever it might be? It's an inevitability. He says, well, let's not get hung up on this. He says, what after all is Apollos? What after all is Paul? Only servants through whom you believed. See it again? The magnificence and the might of God, and the amazing wonder of it that he sets his love upon the likes of us. Now, here we come to the phrase with which we began. You will notice he goes on to say that this is actually instruction for mankind. You've spoken of your your servant's house for a great while still to come, and this is instruction for mankind. In other words, the plan and the prescription for God's kingdom is the plan and prescription through which the whole world is to be blessed. Now, just let that settle in your your thinking for a moment or two. God is conferring powers and rights and privileges on David and on the seed of David for the benefit of all mankind. Not simply that David will be secure in his kingdom— not simply that Israel will progress as God's people, but this instruction is like a charter for all of humanity. <laughs> That's why we began again with Romans 15:4, because the, the reaction to that is surely to say, but wait a minute, it's very interesting. We're in the 21st century, and we're considering something that's way, 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 way back, and we can learn principles from it. No, well, it's fine, but that's not it. No. This instruction, says David, that has come to me through your prophet, Nathan, affects the entire story of the entire world, of the entire 
history of the world. No. No, you see. Because God's promise to Abraham that through his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed is a promise that David now realizes is applied to him and to his seed. That God is promising that through the seed of David, God will establish his kingdom forever. Think about this for a moment or two. There he goes. David went in, and he sat before the Lord. And he's thinking, and he's giving voice to this. The things that you have said, gracious God, go way beyond me. I mean, you've given me a place, but who am I? This actually goes to the ends of the earth. How does he get to that? How, how is it that he is able to respond in this way? The answer, by faith. By faith. There is no way that David could know how this would be and will be fulfilled. All that is yet to come in the fulfillment of the promise is hidden to him. It's part of an unknown future. He doesn't know what we are privileged to know, having been the recipients of the record of the gospel. He doesn't know, as he sits in that tent and thinks about these things, that one day an angel is going to come to a virgin girl and say to her something that will be virtually beyond comprehension. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son— and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see You see, it is as we hear the Word of God that we see things from an entirely different perspective. That the purpose of God from all of eternity is focused on His King. And that King is the one about whom we've been singing. E for eat, O for out for observation, E for every— or for explanation. So, exclamation, observation, explanation. How is it, as you look at the text, how is it that God has brought about all this greatness? That's the question. You will see that he's dealing with this there in verse 21. You have brought about all this greatness. How is it that he's brought about all the greatness? What what can David say in response to this? That's what he's asking. Again, a rhetorical question in verse 20. And what more can David say to you? Well, well, actually, he still has quite a bit more to say. Otherwise, the chapter would end right there. But you see what he's saying. Really, I'm not sure that I can adequately respond to this. What can I say? For you know, for you know your servant— 
It doesn't mean that he knows who he is, or even that he knows what he is, but also that he knows where he is. In other words, God, you and I both know, you and I both know that all this greatness that you have bestowed and that you are apparently about to bestow has nothing at all to do with my worthiness, has nothing at all to do with my importance, has nothing at all to do with my giftedness. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, because the text says, verse 21, because of your promise. You see again? It is because you made a promise. That promise that you made, first of all, to Abraham— and now to me is the promise that you have spoken. You have spoken. How did he speak? He spoke through his servant, Nathan. He told him of the great things that are to come, the instruction for mankind. And now he says, I understand this. It is because you made a promise. It is because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It is because of the covenant purpose of God to take to himself a people that are his very own and to make those people like the sands of the seashore and as vast as the stars in the sky. Revelation 7, a company that no one can number. How is there ever going to be a company that no one can number? On accordance with God's promise. He promised. He promised. You see, it's the exact same whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. How did, the, how did the people in the Old Testament that sang the Psalms know they were forgiven? How did they know that God accepted their worship? On the basis of his promise. And so the same here. It's according to your promise, and it is according to your own heart. You see that? Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Well, of course, uh, this you will remember some of you way back into uh, 1 Samuel in chapter 13, when we came on what is one of the most famous verses in the whole of First and Second Samuel, and a verse that we said is most often uh, applied incorrectly. And that verse is where Samuel said, uh, of him, your kingdom won't continue, he says to Saul, but the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, after his own heart. And I hope you remember then we said that the significance of this is that he was a man of God's choice, that what is being said there is about the place the man has in the heart of God, not the place that God has in the heart of man. You see, when you get it the other way around, you immediately run into problems. Oh, he was the man after God's own heart. We're only a couple of chapters away from a disaster zone in the immorality of his life with Bathsheba. So suddenly we have to readjust our view. What does it really mean to be a man after God's own heart? We hold him up as the epitome of that. No, the wonder of it is that God's heart was filled with David, not that David's heart was filled with God. And the reason that this is going to happen, he says, is because of the place that I have in your heart, O God. In other words, it is by trusting God's promise and knowing God's heart 
that the greatness that has been revealed to David will be his to know. Therefore, verse 22, our time is gone. Let me just give you the, the, the last of the four words. D for declaration. Verse 22. We'll resume here, not this evening, for we have communion this evening, but next time we will come back around verse 23. Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. You see the progression from who am I to there is none like you. It's amazing how many times we have reason to refer to the prayer of Hannah way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.2, and Hannah prays, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Now, notice this as well, that David's ability to declare this, his ability to declare this, the final phrase of verse 22, is according to all that we have heard with our ears. All that we have heard with our ears. What has he heard? God's promise. What has he listened to? God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It goes like this, preaching, hearing, believing, living. So we end where we began. All these things have been written in the past for us, for us. I was rereading this week, uh, surprised by joy, by C.S. Lewis. And towards the end of his autobiographical piece there, as he recounts his move from atheism to theism and on, he says that he was convicted of what he refers to as chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. He says, in other words, the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on account of the fact discredited and virtually obsolete. That is standard in our world today. Why would we pay any attention to history at all? Indeed, the best we can do with history is deconstruct it, is rewrite it, is reframe it. And one of the distinguishing features of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a believer in the Word of the Bible is actually to have an entirely different view and perspective of history than that which is part and parcel of what we're facing now. After all, we're living in a world that has lost its story. We're living in a world that is unprepared to pay attention to the greatest story ever told. And if you know that story, then let me encourage you, let us encourage one another to share it widely and kindly and boldly and unashamedly, because this is instruction for mankind. Just a brief moment of prayer. Our God, we thank you that your word is fixed in the heavens. We thank you that it introduces us to the wonder of a promise made, a promise kept, a promise fulfilled. We want to emulate David in this respect. We want to
sit in your presence. We want to stand on your promise. Help us for your Son's sake. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.